We obviously have much to be thankful for. God is good. He is faithful and He is kind. I'm thankful. As I'm sure those of you who know Christ are, I'm thankful for the fact that He has saved me. That He called me, that He convicted me, that He drew me. That He opened my eyes and turned on the light. That He washed me and cleansed me and forgave my sin. That He declared me not guilty by virtue of His atoning death. I'm grateful that He's going to prepare a place for me and that so that where He is, there I may go also. And He's coming back and He's going to take me there. I'm grateful until then for the family that He's given me, parents that have loved me and taught me truth, a wife that loves me in spite of myself, a lot of grace there, for children and grandchildren that give joy to my heart. I'm grateful for you, for this congregation God's family here that cares about the things that God cares about and that seeks to please Him in all that we do. I'm grateful for the place that He's given us to live, the mission field, the place where He put us, the place where He sent us, the place where we've come, the place where He's put us and the opportunity that He gives us. There's so much to be thankful for. As we turn our attention over the next few weeks to portions of Scripture that address our attitude i wonder if you can say with me occasionally our attitudes need adjusting occasionally we need to just sit back and refocus on the way that we think about things the way that we act and react to things jesus began his work well from creation he was the agent of creation but even then jesus when he became incarnate in human flesh which we're going to be celebrating very shortly at Christmas time, came to accomplish a task that the Father had given to him, and then he accomplished that ultimately in his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood, and then his burial, his death, and then his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. And then he came, and we have the record in Acts of the works that Jesus had begun being continued, what he had begun in his earthly body in the incarnation, he now continues in his body the church you will remember setting the background for our story today that at pentecost peter and the apostles preached the gospel and thousands were saved and over the subsequent days and months the gospel continued to be preached and many gave their lives to the lord jesus christ they became a church in jerusalem a large church made up predominantly of jewish people but persecution came as persecution always does where the Word of God is proclaimed, where God is at work. We do have an enemy, an adversary. Persecution came, and of course the Christians were scattered. And many of these believers went to a town that was primarily a, a Greek-based town called Antioch, a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. And there they carried with them their love of Christ and the gospel that they had experienced and were trained and equipped in. And they began to share the gospel with people in their community. And those who were Jews and those in the synagogue, many of them believed, but also many of the Gentiles believed, some who were Greek, some who were from Asia and different parts of the world, but were now living in Antioch. And all of a sudden we have a, a new burgeoning congregation that's kind of penetrating the whole city, but it looked very different than the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem wanted to make sure that this was genuinely a work of God, so they sent Paul and Barnabas up there to check it out they sent Barnabas up there to check it out Barnabas went and got Paul to help him after he got there and they said indeed this is 
God at work. This is a church. But, and then while Paul and Barnabas had stayed there for a period of time, the Lord sent them out on a mission trip, a trip where they went and they spread the gospel. We call it the first missionary journey or Paul's first missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts. And they went from place to place, establishing churches, being persecuted for their faith, but seeing many people come to know the Lord as Savior. They came back and reported, and all was well. And while they were in Antioch, though, Antioch, though there were some people from Jerusalem who came, not appointed, and they went to Antioch, and they were Jewish, and they said, listen, for you to really be Christians, you need to observe at least parts of the Mosaic law, parts of the Jewish religious culture that God had given to us from the time of Moses on. Well, it caused quite a stir adding circumcision, adding some type of work to the gospel message. And so, for clarification, Paul and Barnabas come back down to Jerusalem. They bring the question and they, they discuss this. This is the, really the, the first big church fight. It's found in Acts chapter 15. But because of the cultural change and because of the theological issues, it's a massive event that takes place. And, of course, God moves and works through the leadership council of this church both peter and james speak and the decision is given no no there's only one gospel and that is one way to be saved and that is by grace through faith both for the jew and for the gentile and they sent word of that back to antioch with paul and silas but also i mean with paul and barnabas but also with a man named jude and a man named silas they went to antioch as well and they were preachers now they did give them some exhortations of some things that they should and should not do to stand distinct from the culture that they were saved out of but then you come to Acts chapter 16. Hey, that's pretty good, guys. We made it through 15 chapters of Acts in about three minutes. Are you impressed? All right, but I, but I want you want to set the context for this because Paul and Barnabas are now ready. Paul says, let's go back and check on the churches. We went to Derby and we went to Lystra. We went to Antioch of Pisidia. We went to all of these places, and we need to go back. We went to Crete, Cyprus. We need to go back and check on these churches. We need to encourage them and make sure that they're staying in the word that god's working in them and barnabas said great let's go let's take john mark with us again and paul said no we tried that last time he didn't get very far and he quit and came home and i can just hear the argument barnabas saying well yes but he's a young man he, he's demonstrated his faithfulness here let's give him a second chance and paul's saying this work is too much it's too busy it's too important too needful it's too necessary to take someone that we know has stumbled once let's let's not anyway the bible says that a sharp disagreement came between paul and barnabas and i don't know about you but that makes me smile <laughs> because here are two of the most godly men characterized in scripture and yet they're able to disagree and I, I'm, there may be some flesh that got involved in their disagreement i don't know the word sharp disagreement indicates that there was a, a dividing line where they said, I can't do this and I can't do what you're doing. And so they went different ways. And Barnabas took John Mark with him. And Paul said, I'll take Silas, the preacher man, the, the man that came from Jerusalem, the, the prophet. And I'll take him with me. And you guys go this way and we'll go that way. And so now we have Paul with a new missionary partner. His name is Silas. And they begin to travel and they go back to Lystra. They go back to Derby. They, they go to these places, and Paul wants to go east. He wants to go to Asia, kind of the northeast area, and just really permeate that area with the gospel. And the Holy Spirit basically shuts him down and says no, and turns his direction to the west. And you can 
read in Acts chapter 16 the story of the Macedonian call. Some of you will be familiar with that phrase where they came to Troas and there Paul had a, a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come to us. We need the gospel. Come. And so God uses that, uses Paul, and they go to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is toward Greece, northern Greece. It's today part of the Balkans, northern Greece, part of the Balkans, the, the region of, of Macedonia. And while Paul's there in Acts chapter 16, we have three kind of major events, and we want to look at the third one here. And, and I want to just kind of walk us back through the text to make sure that we're understanding what's happening. Our account takes place in the city of Philippi. Philippi used to be called Crenides. But there was a man called Philip of Macedonia who took over the city and who named it after himself, Philippi. This was in 327 B.C. Now, Paul and Barnabas have... Um, no, Paul and Silas, I'm going to make that mistake so you guys just edit when I say it, okay? But Paul and Silas have made it to Philippi. And there, when they come into town, normally there's a Jewish presence in the town. And the Jewish men, if there are more than ten men in any city, they can form a synagogue. And they will gather every Sabbath for prayer and for Scripture reading. But evidently in Philippi, there is no synagogue. And so Paul and Silas go looking for the place where they gather to pray. And they hear of a place and they go to a place down by the river where they gather to play, pray. And there they meet a woman who is a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman. She's a seller of purple, a seller of dye and of fabrics. And there they've gathered to pray. And Paul shares the gospel, the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this woman hears the gospel. Her name is Lydia. And she believes and she's saved. And there are many others also who come to know Christ through the proclamation of the gospel there as they met to pray by the side of the river. She invites them to their home, imposes upon them or impresses upon them, hey, look, come on, you found me faithful, come and stay with me. And they do. And they're there in Philippi ministering. And it is common for Paul and for Silas to go out into the agora, into the marketplace, into the lifeblood of the city to preach and to teach. Street preaching, all right? corner preaching, gathering people together, talking to them, and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in this active, busy city. And one day, as they were on their way to the place of prayer by the river, there's a slave girl. Now, she wasn't just a slave girl. She was indeed a slave girl, but she was a, a, a um, income source for some people in this city. You see, she had a demon who lived within her she had a, a gift if you will some would call it a gift it's fortune telling and it was not uncommon in that area because just down the road was the oracle of thrace now the oracle of thrace not quite as popular as the oracle of delphi many of you have heard of this but very popular particularly with the romans augustus himself had been and consulted there there was testimony that this oracle had predicted the coming of Alexander the Great and all of these different things. And so there was a very active demonic presence that could, could foretell the future, divination, a medium, if you will. And this woman was known for this, this girl, this young lady, because of the demon that was in her. And so people would come and they would say, tell my fortune, and they would give money. Now she had handlers. She had owners, if you will. She had people who would reap profit off of her work and she would be left with what was left or whatever they provided to her. 
But when they came to town, the demon that was within her recognized them. And she began to follow them around. Now, it's interesting to me is that when she began to follow them around, she began to shout out about them and to say, yeah, these men are right. They are preachers of the Most High God. They are telling you the truth. You need to listen. So it seems like affirmation, correct? What's wrong with what she's saying? I do believe, by the way, that Satan, one of his methods of attacking the church of God is infiltration. People who will parrot at least portions of truth before leading people astray. Whatever was taking place, I can tell you this, that she was not a follower of Jesus Christ. She was not a follower of the Most High God. She was being disruptive to the Gospel. And again, Paul gets very annoyed. This is twice in this sermon I've talked about Paul being annoyed. (laughs) But he gets annoyed at what's taking place. And he looks at her and he, emulating what the Lord Jesus Christ did to others who were indwelt and influenced by demons and evil spirits, Cast the demon out of her. Leave her at this moment. And in that same hour, then, right then, the demon leaves her and she loses the gift that she had. And she's silent. She's no longer disturbed. Another way to say that, frankly, is that she's set free. She's set free from the demon that indwelt her. She's set free from the demonic influence that was exerting its control over her life. She is released. Now, I don't know that she wanted to be. The Bible doesn't give any occasion that she did. She might have been content. I don't know. Most, I would assume that slavery of that type would not be something that you would embrace. But I do know that there were others who were much less happy with what Paul had done. They were the people who were making money off of her fortune telling. And they got angry. I mean, they got really mad. Because there goes their source of income. One fell swoop. And they get Paul and Silas, and they drag them. Now, the King James Version uses the word drew. I think the ESV says take. But they drug them. It's the same word that's used when it says Paul used to drag Christians. Saul used to drag Christians to the courts and to the prisons. It's the same word. They laid hands on them, and they drug these guys into the middle of the marketplace called the Agora. And there they would have... This was a Roman colony, by the way. Rome had taken over this colony. They had colonized it. And they had places there for the magistrates, for the judge to rule the city, to make judgments. It was there, both small claims and large claim court. They were responsible for the prisons and for the safety and for the policing of the city. And so these guys came and they drug Paul and Silas before them. And and the Bible tells us why. Do you remember why? They were angry because they lost their income. But what did they say to the judges? These are Jews. First played, the first card they played was the race card. These are outsiders. They're different from us. These are the Jews. These Jews have come in here, and they are being disruptive to the city. Was that legitimate? Were they being disruptive to the city? I would say probably yes. They were being certainly disruptive to the business portion of the city that focused on the Temple of Diana or Dionysius, that for, focused on fortune-telling, that focused focused on on different aspects of sinful life apart from Christ. And so the gospel always disrupts life, doesn't it? Aren't you glad that it does? Aren't you glad that God can come to a life and just turn it completely upside down? And so, yeah, there may have been some legitimacy to the claim that they were disrupting city. But then they went on and said, they are teaching that we should embrace things that it's illegal for Romans to embrace. 
And that is an absolutely legitimate claim. The Caesar at this time was called Augustus, Octavian Augustus. And it was the Roman law that no one could be called Lord except for Caesar. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. And if you put anything else there, Christos Curios, or anything other than Caesar as Lord, then that was a capital offense. And so they were indeed teaching against the secular philosophy, if you will, second theology, secular theology of their day. I will tell you they are not the only one, and this was not one that was often enforced. If you're accused by something, of an, by an individual or by a couple of different people or by three different people or four or five, as a magistrate, you can listen to the arguments and you can reason, you can process. But what happens when a mob gets involved? You lose all source of control. A mob got involved and the crowd sided with them and they began to shout and to holler and to press for the magistrates to punish these men, to do something, to address it. And they did. Now, let me tell you a little something about Philippi and Roman colonies, okay? They were settled by Rome. And the way that Rome would settle these colonies is that when soldiers mustered out, when soldiers left the, the, the army, if you will, when they left the legions, when they left service of Rome as a soldier, they would say, now, I want you to retire there. Or to not retire, but to muster out and go live there. And they would, they, in this city, they had at least two different waves of Roman soldiers who were moved into their given land, given a place to live, and given jobs. Some of them were given jobs as praetorian guards. Does that sound familiar to you? These are people who would guard the Roman leaders of the day. They would guard in the jailhouse. They would guard. They had a responsibility to guard the city. Others were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S. And this was the police force. And these were the, the Romans, ex-soldiers, many of them, who were given the responsibilities of patrolling the streets and who were given the responsibility of carrying out the punishment given by the magistrates. And so these magistrates said, punish them. They tore their clothes off of them. Paul and Silas, innocent, unjustly accused, they tore their clothes off of them. And they commanded that they be beaten with rods. I started to bring a tobacco stick. You guys know what a tobacco stick is? Uh, many of you don't. It's certainly okay. It's just a stick, okay? But it's a stick that you use, that you hang on racks to cure tobacco. I was raised with a lot of those around the house. And we, we had a lot of sticks that some of them were as short as about 42 inches. Some of them were as long as 72 inches. And you would hang them on racks and they would have tobacco hanging over the top of them. But it's just a square stick that is cured as the tobacco is cured, the stick is cured. And as kids, we would, this was before lightsabers, okay? This was a long time before lightsabers. But as kids, we would do sword fights with sticks. Have you guys ever done a sword fight with a stick? You ever lost a sword fight with a stick? The welt, the pain, the hurt. I started to bring one just to slam it on the ground because we read they were beaten and we think, oh, that's sad. They were beaten. And we, we tend to lose the impact of what it means to be beaten with a stick, unjustly accused, unjustly punished. They were beaten.
the lictors would carry these sticks in bundles. They would have probably six or eight in a bundle with rope tied around them. They had a long axe-like instrument that would shove down in the middle. And when they were given the task to produce some capital punishment, when they had to take somebody's life, they would take the axe out and use it right then. But if it was less than capital punishment, if it was just one of the Roman beatings, they would take the axe out, lay it to the side, and they would take the bundle of sticks and either use individual sticks or use the bundle of sticks to beat them. Beaten. Bruised. Bleeding. They were then given to a jailer. And the instructions that were given to the jailer was, take these men and keep them safe. Now, what do you think that means? Keep them safe. Does it mean keep them safe from the citizens of Philippi? Potentially. But there's no indication that they weren't satisfied with the punishment or that there was further things that they were to keep them safe from. Even though some of the commentators say, yeah, this was for Paul and Silas's good. I got to tell you, it didn't read like it was for Paul and Silas's good. I think he meant keep them safe, don't let them escape. Keep them safe, keep them out of reach, keep them out of touch. Keep them where they can't interact with the city again. Because the Philippian jailer didn't just put him in jail, he put him in the innermost part. This was the most secure part of the jail. And there he put their feet in stocks. And these were wooden pieces that they would actually bolt their feet to. And it wasn't just to keep them from running off. This isn't just like the, the, the shackles that you see with chains. This was... Again, an additional form of punishment where the legs were spread out and bolted in so there could be no relief. And so we've got Paul and Silas unjustly accused, beaten, bruised and bleeding, sore, painful, drugged into the innermost part of the jail and placed in stocks, standing for hours. How would you respond? I mean, if we're theological, we could say, wait a minute. I'm here serving God. God's promised that he would take care of his servants. He promised that we wouldn't experience any pain, that he would be enough for us, that he would deliver us from our enemies. I remember the Psalms. We used to sing the Psalms. As a matter of fact, we'll go back and sing some more Psalms right now in a moment. But why is this happening? And they could have complained. And they could have murmured. Or they could have just been resigned. I can see Silas saying to Paul, I knew this was going to happen. As soon as we came on this trip, I knew this was going to happen at some point down the line. And we'll just bear with it. And we'll make our way through it. No. What are they doing? Listen. Imagine being there and it's... Hours pass and hours pass and hours pass. The sun has long since set. You're in the prison as a fellow prisoner, perhaps, or as a Praetorian guard, or as a jailer, one who's responsible, the warden, if you will. And all of a sudden you hear voices, but it's not the complaining voices of prisoners. It's not the shouting for relief. It's not asking for food. It's not the hollers of irate men. It's voice of men lifted up in prayer. And they're not desperately saying, Oh God, deliver us from these chains. Deliver us from these bonds. It's prayers of praise. 
prayers that God's name will be magnified, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will take root here in this prison. It may have been prayers for the fellow prisoners because Luke makes a very clear point to point out that the prisoners were listening to them. They had a captive audience. And not only was it prayers of praise, all of a sudden you can hear singing. You can hear voices lifted up in song. And it wasn't a lament. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It wasn't that kind of song. Maybe it was the Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118, hymns of praise that the Jews would sing as they approached the temple. Maybe it was their version of great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Maybe it was their version of hymns and songs and spiritual songs in their singing of the goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Yes, you've led me to the fire and you've led me to the fire. You are good and your goodness continually pursues me. And then, a little sanctified imagination, if you will. Imagine they get to the highest point of praise to God. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. And all of a sudden an earthquake hits. And it's a very localized earthquake. This was an area known for earthquakes and tremors. But this seems to be a very localized one. Because it shook the foundations of the prison. And it shook it in such a way that all the doors flew open. And all the stocks fell off their legs. And all the prisoners were set free. Now here... It's where the story gets interesting to me. Would you call this a jailbreak? Peter had one. You remember Acts chapter 4? Where the angel led him out and led him to the house of Chloe. You remember that? Would you call this a jailbreak? Well, there's only one problem with calling it a jailbreak. They didn't go anywhere. The prisoners didn't leave. Sure, the doors are open. Sure, the the stocks are off of their legs. And the jailer, when he's awakened, sees the doors open. And he takes his sword. The word there is for a short sword. The Roman would carry probably about 18 to 24 inches long. And he prepares to commit suicide. Now, why would he do that? Maybe because he's failed in his task, his responsibility. Maybe because he couldn't handle the failure. It may be because... It was common for the Romans to substitute the jailer who failed for the prisoner who set free. We have at least two other accounts in the book of Acts of of jailers who were killed when their charges escaped. But for whatever reason, there's no hope now. All hope is gone. The door is open. It's dark. I can't see anything. Something has happened. The prisoners must have escaped. And he begins to, 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 to commit suicide. And Paul hollers out, hollers out. Paul yells, stop, wait, we're still here. We're still here. Isn't that great? And the jailer comes and he gets the light and he finds his way back there. And all of the prisoners who could have left have remained. 
they've stayed. And he looks at them. The jailer drops to his knees before Paul and Silas. And he asks the only question that matters. What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answer with the only answer that works. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul and Silas begin to spend time with this man and with his family. And they begin to speak the word of the Lord to them. You know he knew who they were. You know he had probably heard their message in the Agora, in the marketplace. And now it's come to him. And God opened the doors not only of the prison cells, but he opened the doors of this man's heart and of his family's heart. And this jailer and his family believes. He brings Paul and Silas, gives them a bath, feeds them. And he and his whole household are baptized as a declaration of what God has already done in their heart by saving them. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Sometimes I think the biggest portion of any message needs to be simply the recitation of the truth of Scripture. But I do want to make three observations. The first is every persecution or suffering is an opportunity. You see, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to get that bad diagnosis. We don't want to lose those finances. We don't want to be in this stress on the job. We don't want to face the pain that we face. However, the Bible repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly tells us that we are going to face tribulations. You remember in John chapter 14, as Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples, he said, in this world, you will have tribulations. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. Jesus told his disciples earlier, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. And there are the difficulties that come from living in a fallen world, and there are the specific persecutions that come from glorifying the name of Christ and standing for truth. But every suffering is an opportunity for God to do His work, first of all, in us. James chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you face trials of varying kinds. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, which leads to teleos, maturity, growth, stronger faith. And if any of you lack wisdom to know how to apply this or learn this lesson, ask of God who gives to all men willingly, and He doesn't fuss at you for asking. There is always an opportunity for personal growth. I don't know if you guys remember um, the old... uh, um, I forget what it's called. In Arizona, they made a false environment where they put... uh, Thank you. Boy. Biodome. Biosphere. All right. You guys remember that? What happened there? They planted trees. They made a localized rainforest. They had a completely sealed environment. They were able to grow fruit and vegetables. They were able to replenish their oxygen. They had filters. They were even able to reprocess water. Do you all remember that? But they ran into problems just not long, months, well, actually about 18 months. After they were in there, the trees that they planted started falling over. They started dying. And then they called in these experts, and they said, what's the matter with these trees? Why is our rainforest failing? And the experts said, the wind doesn't blow in here. The storms don't create adverse circumstances. 
There's no drenching of downpour that's going down to the roots. And these trees have no roots. They all have surface roots. And they can't survive because they haven't had enough trouble. <laughs> you understand what happens? The, 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 that God uses storms of life. He uses difficulties and trials to deepen our roots and to deepen our faith and to grow us in our walk and our relationship with Him. Suffering is always an opportunity for growth, but it's more than that. Suffering is an opportunity for us to glorify God. Suffering is an opportunity for us to give God glory. When things are good, anyone can sing in the sunshine, right? When things are good, hallelujah. We get to sing, but we get to glorify God when things are bad. Paul and Silas were able to sing in the stocks. They were able to praise in the prison because of their trust in God. And their trust in God generated an attitude of gratitude in their heart. You see, it wasn't that God overlooked them and somehow they got thrown into prison. It wasn't that God was somehow unable to keep them out of prison. Or God wasn't, un, wasn't able to free them from prison. Obviously, demonstrated in the story. It was that God wanted them there. It was that God in His sovereignty directed their path and put them there. I believe that's why they stayed, by the way. I believe they stayed because they had this sense or this guidance or this trust in the sovereignty of God and His desire for His glory and he, the calling that He had placed upon their life. They were fully yielded. That their primary goal was not deliverance from their circumstances. Their primary goal was that God be glorified and that lives be changed. Did you hear that? Their primary goal was not deliverance from their circumstances, but that God be glorified and that lives be changed. They were able to draw strength from the presence of the Lord. Some other time, when you have time, go look at 1 Samuel. I believe it's chapter 28. You'll find the story of David in the time of tribulation. And he's just really having a tough time. He's about to be deposed from the group that he's leading. And the Bible says he got away by himself and he strengthened himself in the Lord. These guys strengthened themselves in the Lord because of their trust and their faith in him. And I'll look up that text to make sure you know which one it is and get it out. But they streng he strengthened himself in the Lord. They strengthened themselves in the Lord. You guys remember the book of Lamentations? You know what a lament is? In Lamentations chapter 3, the song which graded thy faithfulness is based upon of, you have a lament, and it is not a brief one. It is a long one. He begins by saying, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he's turned his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. No, I could go on because he does for about 20 verses. But then you get to verse 21. Listen to this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. 
The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. They are strengthened because of their trust in God. And by the way, I've got to say this, and it's later than I thought it was, so we will get to the third point. (laughs) But, But can I say this? One of the reasons that we complain so much is we keep our eyes on the circumstances and we keep trying to figure out how to get out of them or how to deal with them or how to cope in them without ever putting our trust in God. And I talk to people often who say, I prayed, I prayed, and I asked God, and, you know, this is where I am and I don't like it. And and in my mind, I keep coming back and, and thinking, You've not prayed like Paul prayed. You've not prayed like God calls us to pray. You've not transferred trust for your life and your care from you to God. Because if you have, then you can rest, you can have confidence, and you can have peace regardless of the circumstance and the situation. When you came to Christ, you gave your life to Him. Every decision, every asset, every liability, every choice is no longer yours. We just sing, crown him with many crowns. We just sing, he is my king. If he's the king, he's the king. And he can save me from any circumstance. He can send an earthquake and open the doors and break the bonds. I have no doubt about that. But what if he doesn't? Is he any less king? Is he any less loving? Is he any less good? Paul said, I have given my life to him. And he has given his life to me. And by my life I will serve him. And if it is my death that serves him more, I want whatever brings him the most glory. We hold... Listen, life is precious and it's a gift from God. But sometimes we hold on too tight to things that are going to pass away when we need to fully embrace the things that are eternal. Amen? And that's what gives us confidence and peace in the midst of the pains of life. Can you sing in the stocks? Can you praise in the prison? You can when you pray deep enough and hard enough and sufficiently enough and yielded enough to transfer trust from yourself or anything else to God and God alone. And when you do, somebody's going to notice. When you do, somebody's going to notice. When you are struggling through life and there may be tears in your eyes, but there's a smile on your face and a sense of contentment in your heart. It is going to be so foreign to people who know not God that it will grasp your attention. You see, your attitude is a testimony. It's a testimony of the faithfulness of God. A grateful life sets the stage for a spoken gospel. Sir, What must we do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Here, let me tell you. Why would you ask? Because the doors were open. 
you were you were praising in prison, you were singing in the stocks, and the doors were open, and you stayed. You didn't flee. You see, I believe the story of the Philippian jailer is not a story primarily about what happened to Paul and Silas. I believe it's primarily a story about what happened to the Philippian jailer and his family. And how God orchestrated and sovereignly, providentially, worked through events and circumstances that this man and his family could be delivered from death to life, from darkness to light. We'll close. We'll close. But can I give you good news? You can praise when life hurts. Life's going to hurt. From time to time, life's going to hurt. And you can praise. I don't mean stupidly or foolishly. Oh, I thank you for the pain. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I thank you for your faithfulness in the pain and through the pain. I thank you that this pain has a purpose. I thank you that you're working in me and through me. And you want to change me. But also you want me to be a witness and a testimony to my kids who see me in the midst of my pain. To my roommates and my family. To my fellow employees. To the people that I interact with. To the kids that I lead. To the senior adults who are facing some very difficult circumstances on their own. There's a testimony of the faithfulness of God. When we praise and we sing because we've placed our trust in a God who never leaves us alone. We'll close. Guys, come on up. Jill, Rick. I love this song that we're going to sing next. And I want us to sing it as a congregation. As uh, This will be the invitation. All right? This will be the time when we, when we kind of bring all of this to, a, to this portion of this service to a close. To affirm to declare that God is faithful and He's never once left us on our own, even in the midst of pain. Amen? Father, take this song and, and, and help it to be our testimony. Help it to be our, our reality and our experience. Equip us for whatever pain we've been through, whatever pain we're going to be facing, whatever suffering. Help us to suffer it as as a witness, as a testimony, as those who are fully placing our trust and our confidence in you. In your name I pray. Amen.